for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. Hello, thank you for turning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show. This is episode, episode 38. I'm with James Sturdivant, who is a 31-year high school teacher and author teaching at Black Walnut High School. James, welcome to the show. Hey, Big Walnut High School, Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm at Big Walnut High School in eastern Delaware County, and uh, boy, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the uh, invite. And for the audience, uh, one of our former guests, Coach Burson, has recommended James as, as being a guest, and... Uh, just doing some background and research, I think James is going to share an amazing story and give useful tips to anyone who's engaged with working with young people or people in general. It, it's all about engagement and connection, and, and I know that's that's one of your your big missions in life. Sure is, and I got to tell you something, Ron. Uh, I love your podcast title. I think it's I think it's wonderful you're doing this. I mean. Mid-October in Ohio, I don't know if there's a nicer place on earth. I don't know what your day was like today, but all I saw was blue skies and beautiful leaves and crisp temperatures, and <laughs> coming in to talk to you tops it all off, my man. Well, I appreciate that. James, for the audience, can you share a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up? Uh, I, I know we spoke a little bit about this earlier. Uh, teaching's really in your blood, uh, and then talk talk to that a little bit, and and kind of take us through your journey to where you got to today. Sure. I live in eastern Delaware County, which uh, I think most people familiar with the state know where that is. It's just north of Columbus. Very prosperous place, very dynamic place, but it's a really flat place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my heart goes back to eastern Ohio. I grew up in this, in this small little town called New Concourse, nestled in the hills, uh, college town. It's where Muskingum University is. And uh, I had this pretty idyllic childhood. Uh, it's kind of like Mayberry on the old uh, Andy Griffith show. Uh, my dad was a college professor at Muskingum for years. Uh, my dad taught Coach Burson in class. Uh, Jim Burson, legendary basketball coach at Muskingum. He lived just down the street, so he was one of those people I looked up to. Um, but, you know, I went through school and I liked school. But I was never all that sold on the academic part, which is kind of funny for a teacher to admit. You know, it was like just this vast social opportunity. You know, I I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed interacting with people. But the academic part of it was just kind of something I did to to keep people off my back, with the exception of history. I loved history because my dad was a history professor, and I I grew up with it. So it was uh, – my junior year of high school, and my grades were very average. I mean, nothing to write home about at all. And I was kind of thinking, wow, I'm really getting to a point where I have to start getting serious about things. And uh, for some reason, luckily, this switch flipped, and I became a serious student my senior year. Uh, I was able to go to Muskingum College the next year. And, and by that point, I was fully engaged. I loved college. Uh, and I really applied myself, and things went well. And I got through Muskingum. I graduated in 83, and I thought, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, here I am, this history major, and, uh, you know, my dad's a teacher, and that's cool, and it's been great for him, but uh, what do I want to do? And I, and I really had a couple choices. Uh, one was to go to law school, which was a natural, like, evolution, because I was 
I was good at reading. I, I was good at writing. And I thought, I, I'm going to excel at this. But the more I looked into it, and I, I hope I don't offend any of the lawyers in your audience, it just seemed like an awful lot of really boring reading. Hmm. And then coming in the next day and arguing about it with exceptionally intense people. And so when I looked at law school, I thought, geez, I don't think that looks like much fun. And I don't know that I would enjoy that much. And so I thought I would go to Ohio State University and, and get a master's degree in history, almost like a holding pattern until I could mm. figure out what I wanted to do in life. So I went up to OSU and I got my MA in history. And I thought, well, okay, I've done this. Maybe I should teach for like a couple years, just, just like a steady job with good benefits. And, you know, I, I know about teaching because of my father. And Ron, I stepped into class the, the first day. I was at Mount Vernon High School, just up the road. Um, and I, I came to the conclusion within about a week, this is an awesome job. This is a really neat profession. I love coming to work every day. I enjoyed interacting with the students. And it just seemed like I was a student myself and getting paid a lot of money to do it. So, uh, you know, but I still wasn't sold on the job. I mean, you know, like, but one year turns into two, turns into three, turns into four, and pretty soon you've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I look back on how I came to be a teacher, and it's just pure luck, pure, like, circumstance. It wasn't like this this lifelong mission I had, but, but I have to tell you that it is a fantastic job. It is a wonderful profession. And, and any young people in the audience that are listening right now, even remotely considering it, I... I it's just so. It's just an awesome way to spend your life. Now you started at Mount Vernon High School. That's right. Yeah. I, I taught at three different high schools. I taught at Mount Vernon. I taught at Marion City, uh, Marion Harding High School, mm-hmm. and I taught at Big Warner. I've been at Big Warner for a number of years, about twenty. Okay. Yeah, my my boss Doug Curry went to Mount Vernon High School. Well, yeah. when he graduated. Uh, he would have been in the mid '80s, but there's there's a lot of Currys in that area. So well, you, you might know me. I, I came there in, in 1985. Okay. And I married the um, hey, I married Penny Dow, the 1981 uh, homecoming queen. I bet you he knows her. Oh, I, yeah, I'll I'll mention that too. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, in looking at your website, it seemed like, and this is what I was hoping you could share with the audience next. Sure. There was a tipping point where you really decided to go all in with connecting with your students and and you really started developing this framework for how to do that. What was that tipping point for you? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I enjoy as a teacher is having student teachers. And, you know, these young people come up and they're really enthusiastic and I, I I get a big energy boost from them and I like to think I help them. And I like to think I help them navigate this job, which can be very tricky. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. So I had this young man from, he went to Utica High School. And he played football at Otterbein. And Otterbein's just down the road from, from Big Walnut. And we get a lot of their student teachers. So uh, this young man comes walking in the first day. I'm five foot seven. I have a shaved head, you know. Uh, this guy comes in. He's an Otterbein football player. He's this really good-looking young man. And automatically all the girls in class are like, you know, man, this is a massive upgrade from this district. <laughs> so they're all like thoroughly encouraged by the development. There's uh, some athletes in class, and they're drawn to this guy, Charlie Raleigh, who now just teaches right across the hall from me. Hmm. But Ron, I could 
you know, I've been in this business long enough. I could, I could look out there in the class and I could see that there was a handful of students that were thinking, oh, great, we have another jock social studies teacher. You know, that's where they always put the coaches. Hmm. You know, they're not serious about this subject at all. And I could tell by their body language, just by reading their body language, that they were going to give Charlie the cold shoulder. They weren't going to give him the time of day. So I pulled Charlie aside on the first day and I said, look, you know, I can teach you the content, lesson plans, all that stuff. It's pretty easy. Your mission is to try to forge a relationship with those kids that are pretty standoffish. And that's going to take some work on your part, and that's going to take you, you know, putting your ego in your back pocket. Mm. Now, Charlie is so much more mature than I was at 22 years old. And he goes, hey, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's see if we can win them over. And so for the next four weeks, we've worked so hard on him melting their Arctic exteriors, him like winning over these standoffish kids. And and he really did a great job. So his professor from Otterbein comes up, and she's, uh, you know, most student teachers are a little nervous the first time they have to perform in front of their professors. So he's up there, and he's doing a really, really good job. And I'm kind of sitting back there watching her and watching him and watching the kids. And this professor kept looking around the room, and she was uh, smiling and nodding. And I, I could tell that she really liked what was going on. So the lesson concludes. She gives Charlie lots of uh, kudos. Comes up to me and she goes, "How did you create the atmosphere in this classroom? Hmm. What, what is what is the secret to this classroom culture that I'm observing that I really like?" Now, Ron, I consider myself a person who has the ability to string together some coherent words and form a sentence on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I had no answer. I sat there thinking, oh, my gosh, how, how did I create this atmosphere? Did I create it? Did, did I have anything to do with it? What, what's going on here? I, I remember I had no rational answer to her rational question whatsoever. Mm. I sat there sputtering for about 30 seconds. And finally, you know, she took pity on me and asked something else. But she left, and I thought to myself, why in the world couldn't I answer that question? That was a rational question. Mm. Now, Otterbein has this pretty enlightened program. If you take on one of their student teachers, they'll give you some tuition reimbursement, which they should because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I went down to Otterbein and I said, hey, your, your visiting professor asked me a question. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, how about if I do an independent study with one of your profs and we work on, on, on connecting with students and how you do that? Mm. And I got hooked up with a lady. And I, anybody in your audience who went to Otterbein, majored in education, They'll, they'll recognize this name. Her name's Diane Ross. She's a fabulous professor down there. Not Diana Ross, <laughs> but Diane Ross. And uh, we got hooked up, and over the summer, I think it was 2010, we just we just talked and bantered and read and, and discussed. And at the end of that summer, she goes, Jim, this is pretty good. You ought to turn it into a publisher. And that's exactly what, <laughs> the, way it, the way it happened. And what's interesting about it ultimately is, you know, this is year 31 for me. I can retire exactly one year from now. Um, And I feel good about what I've done as a teacher. And about four or five years ago, I thought to myself, hey, I can just kind of, you know, ease on (laughs) to those retirement years and and have it pretty pretty good. And uh, now I've gone off on this this absolutely enjoyable ride – of, you know, sharing my ideas with people on, on how to build these relationships with kids. And it's just, 
It's just opened up a lot of doors for me that have been very enjoyable to walk through, like being on a podcast with, with Mr. Ron here. <laughs> so I, lo- I love that answer. And I had a couple follow-up questions. Sure. It, it, on one hand, if you could talk more about the book yeah. and, and how that came to be and, and share the title of the book with the audience. And then also, in addition to the book, you really engage your students and you talk a lot about using technology. I've, I've watched some of your YouTube videos and they're awesome. Well, thank you, sir. And just if you could talk about the book first and then talk yeah. about how you've used technology. Sure. You know, um, this is interesting. We have something in secondary education. I'm certain you have something at the college level similar. It's called an in-service. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, okay, you have to prove that you're competent to do the job, so <laughs> you have to continually upgrade yourself with sure. continuing education, in-service, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I don't think that's bad. I mean, I've learned a lot through professional development. But I was thinking uh, in, in the process of writing this book that, you know, we get in-serviced on lots of things. And I made a list of some of the things that I've been trained on or in-serviced on. Differentiation teaching to all different abilities, rubrics, summative assessment, formative assessments, think-pair-share, self-directed learning, professional learning communities, creation of teacher websites, bring your own technology, flip classrooms, essential questions, and project-based learning. Those are just the ones I can remember. I've had some really boring ones that I forgot, a lot of them. I can't remember one time when an administrator stood in front of uh, my colleagues and me and said, you know, staff, we're going to work on forging stronger relationships with our students, mm. which is really surprising. And, and I have a couple of theories as to why that's the case. I, I think some people think that that's something that's just supposed to come naturally, that you really can't teach that. You either have it or you don't. And I push back a lot against that in my book. It's, it's, my feeling is it's more what you do. Well, it's, it is who you are, but it's also what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting Right after my book came out, and this is where you know, people have helped me that, that agree with me, uh, Steve Short was the former superintendent at Mount Vernon City Schools. He and I coached football together like 30 years ago. So he and I know each other, and he moved up the ranks and became the superintendent. You know, he, he saw my book. He read it. And he was enthusiastic. He gives me a call. He said, Jim, are you familiar with an Australian researcher called John Hattie? I said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, he's really prominent among a lot of education uh, administrators. You want to become familiar with him hmm. because he talks a lot about what you're talking about. So, boy, that was a person I needed to get to know. Now, the heart of John Hattie's uh, work, and this is, this is very important, he believes there's a list of 138 influences on student learning. And number one is self-evaluation. That's where, uh, and you probably experienced this. That's where a teacher gives you the rubric and has you go through your own work and make corrections. Now, when you do that for a kid, it really empowers them and engages them. And, and it's, it's the best thing you can do for learning is to have kids do a lot of self-evaluation. The worst thing that can happen to a child is, uh, and I've seen this, you know, a young lady moves into my class on October 1st and she's gone on November 1st. She's moved to another school. Kids that get moved around a lot, that's devastating to a young person's intellectual development. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Steve Short told me to get familiar with this guy for a reason. 
I was really curious where would student-teacher relationships fall on a list of 138, a list of 138 in 11th place. Hmm. And it's so far in front of a lot of things that we might think are more important. Professional development's in 19th place, which is high, but not as high as student-teacher connection. Socioeconomic status, 32nd place. Most people would put it one or two. Hmm. Uh, principals and school leaders. This makes my wife mad because she's a principal. 74th place. <laughs> <laughs> and class size is 107. So here's this list of all these things that are so darn important. Number 11, student-teacher relationships. That gave me tremendous affirmation for what I did, which uh, I just wished I would have known about the guy before I wrote the book. <laughs> 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 Certainly would have included it. Now, what's interesting about that, and I know I'm going on a little bit, but the Ohio Department of Education has determined that this is extremely important. Uh, we have something here in Ohio, like most states, we have something called the Resident Education Program. It's just, a, it's just an apprenticeship. You know, first-year teachers have to prove that they know how to do the job and they're growing. Now, uh, I'm going to read right from the Ohio Department of Education website. This is one of the things that first-year teachers have to demonstrate. They have to uh, demonstrate their building relationships with students by establishing and maintaining rapport, valuing each student as an individual while avoiding the use of biased stereotypes and generalizations. So I do think that even though there's not much professional development on this, it's incredibly important and one of the main reasons I wrote the book was to help people give them how-tos on how to build those relationships, because I quite frankly thought there was a big void. Great. Talk about technology and how you sure. use that to, to build those connections. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, in my career, which started in the mid-1980s, technology has transform things. In 1985, I wrote things on a chalkboard. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody knows how to use a chalkboard. <laughs> if I, I, I mean, my chalkboards are more or less uh, interesting backdrops in my class. You know, I, I, I think that if I leave a piece of chalk out, the kids write graffiti on the chalkboard. So I don't even do that anymore. <laughs> uh, the technology has, has changed things dramatically. And when technology happens like this, it forces people to adapt. And, and, and I'm not going to tell you that I'm just like this person that just embraced all this stuff immediately. You know, I, I was slow on the uptake as well. But something happened to me last year that was really interesting. I teach a dual enrollment class. For those of you that are familiar with dual enrollment, I have a master's degree in history from Ohio State. So I am allowed to teach a college class. Now, a lot of kids, when they go to high school, they, and you might have done this wrong, they take AP, which is advanced placement. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they go through this class, and if you know the class, they take a test, and if they score so high on the test, they get college credit. Well, the cool thing about dual enrollment is because I am a master's degree in history, I teach a college class, they get the college credit without mm -hmm. having to take the test. Now, um, this goes through Columbus State. Columbus State's this wonderful institution here in central Ohio that <laughs> educates an incredible number of people. And uh, what's interesting is Columbus State got fussed about the fact that I was meeting with these kids five days a week, which is not the way college works. So they said, Jim, you're going to have to meet with them three days a week. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get everything in? Well, the way you get everything in is you flip things. Hmm. And when you flip things, 
you do a lecture or a presentation, you put it on YouTube, and then the kids watch it on their own time. And then you come in and you apply the information. Now, at first I thought, I'm not sure how that's going to go. And I'm going to tell you something. It has been one of the most profound shifts in a positive way in my, in my education career. And here's why. When a kid goes home and, and, and watches YouTube, they're very comfortable in that atmosphere. It's what they're accustomed to doing. If there's something they don't understand, they pause it. They rewind it. They watch it over again. They get tired of watching. They take a break. Uh, they watch it at 3 in the morning while the TV's on, and they have their headphones in listening to a song. I mean, they multitask like crazy. Now, if you ask that child to sit there and listen to you do a presentation in front of them, they fidget. Now, I consider myself a pretty good storyteller, but I struggle maintaining their attention. Mm-hmm. I have found that this flipped uh, paradigm has really worked for my students and me. And that, that, was, that was a big positive shock. The other thing that I've done just this year, and, and I'm hardly qualified to talk about because I've been doing it for a grand total of four weeks, <laughs> is uh, our students now blog. And uh, blogging is, is like a virtual virtual journaling. You know, it's, it's journaling on a worldwide stage. But what's interesting about it, it's not like writing something down in a, in a book. You can add videos. You can add voice you can add uh, images, and it does what the Internet does best. It absolutely wipes out distances. So we can blog with kids from Russia seamlessly without spending a dime. And it doesn't have to be at the same time. They can, they can look at it on their own time. And, and I have found that the combination of blogging and the combination of uh, flipped classrooms just this year, again, I just have weeks uh, experience with this, has been utilizing technology in a way that has just transformed my class in a positive way. What I'm really fascinated about that, and we use, I've been using Khan Academy a lot with my children, yes. mm-hmm. is, like you said, self, self-paced self learning. And I really, what I really see the teacher becoming is a coach. Absolutely. In the classroom, because it had, the technology equalizes out the fact that everyone learns at their own pace. What's wrong with a second grader doing pre-algebra work on Khan Academy if they've got the gift in that area? That's right. But conversely, they don't. They're a little behind it from the English standpoint because that's just not their interest. So you can you can play to strengths a lot more. Uh, you can indiv- individualize the approach a lot more. It, I'm really fascinated by the way I perceive education going. Yes. And the people that are on the cutting edge like yourself are certainly embracing that concept and, and helping people go in that direction. Ron, I, I, I love what you just said. Uh, you know, uh, this is an interesting uh, sidebar we're on right now because, again, I can retire in about 11 months. And I'm trying to think, what, what the heck do I want to do? Do I... I can tell you right now, I'm not going anywhere unless I have something really fascinating to go to because I love my job, and I'm not, I'm not trying to leave. But one thing I'm playing with is the idea. I've had people approach me, how about taking your class online mm-hmm. and, and, just, and just doing it that way? And, and boy, that really intrigues me. I, very much that intrigues me. But everything's trade-offs. Mm-hmm. 
I miss shaking hands with those kids on a daily basis. I, I right. miss telling them, hey, I like that shirt you're wearing. I miss telling them, uh, I miss them having me, having them evaluate my outfit and tell me if it matches or not. So, uh, but it is kind of the way things are going, you know? I mean, so, so, you know, you and I are connecting right now and we're, you know, hundreds of miles apart. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's possible, but it's different. Right. Well, what the other part about it that's real fascinating, I heard this on a Glenn Beck show on education one time. He was talking about how when, when he's, he's trying to give his kids the best experience is in the classroom as possible. And what, and what his point was is he asked the audience, he said, who's the best history person on this topic in the world? And no one knew the answer. And he said, well, I don't know either, but the Internet does. Exactly. And it's shrinking the world enough that you can find that expert and have them teach you in, in that subject matter. And it's, it's just fascinating how you can really develop this individualized, personalized curriculum with experts and, and, yes. but, and, and I still think there, I still think there's a role for the teachers from the coaching aspect and such. So it's, it's really a dynamic way that it's going right now. Let me, let me just piggyback on that a second. And this, this is fascinating to me. Uh, when I was in college, uh, word processors became prominent right about my junior year, which, you know, I was still trying to type on a typewriter my freshman and sophomore year, which is just awful. It was just, it just made me not like doing it because mm -hmm. it was so cumbersome. But uh, we used to go in these little card catalogs and look up these little sources, and then we'd have to footnote everything correctly, and then we'd have to do the bibliography. Right. I had the uh, uh, Columbus State reference librarian, Dana Knott, come into my class. And these kids all use databases today. Their research is just sitting on the rear end looking at a laptop, and they get their sources like that. Mm -hmm. What's more, once they get their sources, they put it in EasyBib. EasyBib, you know, uh, inserts the citation right in the text. Right. Use your work cited page. And I was trying to impress upon them how hard this used to be and how, how, how much of a drag it used to be. And I don't, I don't, I don't think they appreciated it. I don't think they understood. I mean, you're right. It's just, yeah, it, not only does it eliminate distances, but it puts libraries at your fingertips. Right. Libraries will Right. James, something I got a real sense for, and I was hoping you could speak to it. You've got a, besides a personal partnership, a real strong professional partnership with your wife. And it sounds like you really play to your, each other's strengths really well. Can you speak to that? Yeah. My wife is the principal at Big Lawn at middle school. Um, my wife is a young woman who uh, was a mom before she graduated from high school. Hmm. Um, and back in those days, you got expelled for that. You know, it, it was a it was a pretty draconian uh, existence back then. And it took her a while to bounce back from that. She went to Heidelberg. She thought about becoming a doctor, but with a, a small child, uh, she didn't really have uh, the resources or the time to commit to that. She got into some education classes and liked it. Became a science teacher at Danville, which is a small school in Knox County. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> just like me, you know, came to the mind pretty quickly that this is a pretty neat profession. Her and I met in Knox County. I was teaching at Mount Vernon. She was uh, at Danville. And, uh, you know, we developed a relationship and, and got married from there. She uh, 
became a guidance counselor, and she was an amazing guidance counselor because of her background. She had tremendous empathy for the kids. Um, did such a good job as guidance counselor that uh, the superintendent of Marion City, Gary Barber, great man, wonderful guy, um, who was our principal at Big One at the time, said, Penny, you need to be in administration. And uh, she became the assistant principal, and then she became the principal at the uh, middle school. And, you know, she is, uh, she's been on podcasts too. She gets the relationship side, and she works that angle with her staff. Staff's very devoted to her. They feel like she's very supportive of them. And it's kind of interesting. I have tremendous empathy for administrators because I think that's a very tough job. And, and, and I hear the things she goes through and the, and the struggles she has and how hard she works. I keep her grounded on the sense that, hey, look, you know, some of you guys make these decisions that aren't the greatest. And this is how it impacts us where the rubber meets the road. And so we have that little back and forth dynamic going on a regular basis. And also, I think she's a lot of fun to talk to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have that going too. Sure. Going back to the book, can you can you speak to some components of it? Yeah. There, <laughs> there was one part that caught my eye. You said avoid the. It was maybe it was avoid or be careful of the faculty lounge. Yeah, that's right. Well. Let me tell you something, man. We transformed our, our faculty lounge at Big One. We have a rule that you're not allowed to talk about school in our faculty. Mm. You go in there and you eat lunch and you talk about the Bengals. You talk about Ohio State. You talk about the movie you just saw. You talk about, uh, you know, somebody's uh, going out with somebody. You ask how their relationship's going, although that doesn't happen too much at the dude table there. <laughs> but we have made the uh, commitment that that is our – that is our escape time. That, that is our recharge time. That is not our complaint time. And to be honest with you, uh, it's, it's magical. It's wonderful. So a lot of teachers' lounges, I've been in teachers' lounges when that's the case. Now I'm like the old guy on the block, so they listen to me when I say, let's not talk about school. And so that, that's been something I have to give myself a little credit <laughs> uh, As far as the book goes, uh, my big thing was, One of my big mantras is connecting with kids. It's a lot more what you do than people think. I mean, people tend to think, you know, well, that guy is an extrovert. He's one of those guys in the hallway high-fiving kids and pointing down the hall. And it just comes natural for him. Uh, So, you know, he can do it and I can't because I'm an introverted person. And it doesn't come naturally to me like it does him. And and I really want to push back because – my book is all about things that you do that bond you with students. It's not like who you are. It's, it's what you do. And I, I just have to tell this, this quick story. Uh, we have a lady in our building who's in guidance now. Her name's Gina Collette. And she came to a big one in high school about 10 years ago. She went to OU. Uh, pretty reserved person, real quiet person, attractive woman, not a real big person. And I remember looking at her on the first day, and I, I was thinking, oh, geez, you know, I hope she can corral these high school kids. They might give her a rough way to go. And I think they did it first. But what I witnessed in her in the 10 years that she was in the classroom is she started to do the right things with kids. She played to her strengths. She was a very – she is not – she not was, is. She is a very caring person. She's a very encouraging person. 
She's a very available person. So kids had problems, they would come to her. Uh, she's very serious about her curriculum. And by emphasizing those traits, I watched this young woman go from a person who was a little frazzled the first year to being the most popular person on our staff, the most popular staff member in our school within 10 years. Now, that tells me that that young woman, who someone might look at and say, well, she doesn't have the disposition to connect and be a, a school leader, could, can do that if she does the right things. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I was on a program on WOSU, uh, NPR. I, I was being interviewed uh, on their show, and I was on there with a lady called Elizabeth Green. And Elizabeth Green is, is this big-name education researcher from New York who will sell 500,000 more copies of her book than I ever will mine. And this, this topic of personality and connecting with kids came up. And Elizabeth just paid me this tremendous favor by just handling this question in a way that I better than I could. Um, she said that so many researchers have searched for the personality that's the silver bullet when it comes to effective teaching, and they don't turn up. So you can have uh, a person who's a very quiet, very introverted person really bond with students. You don't have to be something you're not. You don't have to be a game show host or a Walmart greeter to connect with kids. And, and so that's what my book is all about. It's, it's giving teachers how-tos, tools, whatever you want to call them, things to do to help them bond with their students. Okay. And it's not it's not dependent on your personality. I hope I get the name right. George Gray? Yeah, yes, George Gray. Can, can you talk about George Gray? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> George Gray is our custodian. And uh, George Gray is this guy who I love. Uh, he's, he's, he's one of my favorite people on staff. And, you know, after school, I'm one of these people that, that literally just shuts down. I mean, some people are hard at it, working on lesson plans. Okay, those kids leave my classroom. I need about 30 minutes of zero stimulation because it's been a long day. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to do is I like to turn on one <laughs> of the Star Trek original series <laughs> on Netflix, and I just kind of recline back on my couch, put my – right on the couch – on my, my chair, put my legs up on my desk, and I sit and I watch this show. Well, George Gray comes in every day. You know, he's an old guy, Star Trek fan, too, so he always plops down, and we just, we just talk. And, and he and I are good friends. And uh, it's kind of interesting. He's a big dog lover. And I, and I adopted this dog, and, you know, half pug, half dog. some real funny-looking little dog, and he has these really long toenails. So I showed a picture of this to George, and he's like, Hey, man, your dog's toenails need trim. I'm like, all right, where do I get that done? So, yeah, he was ready. He goes, well, my wife just opened a dog grooming salon in Johnstown. So I said, okay, man, I'll take my, uh, I'll, I'll take my dog to Johnstown and get the toenails trimmed. Now, this is one thing that I do with students to bond with them all the time. And, I, I, I mean, it just makes you human. Uh, I just share a little bit about what happened to me over the previous 24 hours on a regular basis. It's the way I open class. Mm -hmm. So I took some pictures of my dog riding to uh, Johnstown, took some pictures inside the uh, George's wife's store, uh, 
then finally took a picture of my dog suspended in midair, getting his toenails trimmed. I bring those in the next day, and I take about two minutes out of class and show them these pictures. And they all love Mr. Gray. Uh, and, and, they, and they thought my dog was real funny looking. And, and, and like some people will look at that and say, well, Jim, that's a tremendous waste of instructional time. And, and I think that that's very short-sighted on a number of fronts. Um, these kids are totally used to, with social media, just telling people trivial things about daily existence. They understand it. It's, it's, it's their mode of operation. So if you come in and put up a picture of what you made for dinner last night and talk about, you know, how you made it and how it was received, they're totally down with that. I mean, look, look at what they post on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the heck they put on these days. Mm-hmm. It's all like, you know, who they're attracted to, what music they like, what teams they like. It's just, it's just all trivial stuff. But here's the takeaway, man. Ryan. I, I want to tell you something. Uh, I told this story, and this little girl on the back, who had never said a word all year, walks up to me after class, and with a trembling hand, she she holds up an image and goes, Mr. Sturdivant, let me show you a picture of my doll. You know, that wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. if I hadn't taken just a couple minutes out of class to share some stupid little story about my life. (laughs) And from that moment, that breakthrough moment with that kid, we talked every day. it, it, It brought her out of her shell the fact that I told this silly little story about my life. And you know what's weird? I, I didn't anticipate that happening. I mean, this was a girl that just, she, she barely said a word to me. I didn't think she liked me. But all of a sudden, that was a breakthrough because of that stupid little uh, share I had, thanks to George coming in and telling me to take my dog to his, his wife's dog grooming salon. <laughs> so that's, aside from the fact I just like the guy, that, that's why George is important to this story. Without, without getting into every chapter in the book and, and talking about specific details, what, what are three to five top pieces of advice you would give any person, right. especially from older generations, to connect with younger generations? Because it, it, it is an issue in society. And uh, I, I heard one of my colleagues last week referred to the to this generation as the HD generation. Yeah. And we said, what's that mean? They said, heads down. Yeah. Because they're always down on their phone like this. So there is, there is a significant gap, I believe, about trying to connect with people that are, are on their devices all the time rather than having the conversations. What are, what are three to five pieces of advice that you would have? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a great one right now, and, and, and this is something I'm passionate about. Uh, and I'll preface this by saying, uh, you're a Brownies fan, right? You, you come from Cleveland. Yeah. You, you it's hard to Browns? admit. It's hard to admit. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot stand their new uniforms. <laughs> no, they're My not. students love their new uniforms. Of course. I'm like, I'm like, I like that classic old school look you guys have. Now you got these things that look like a high school team or something. And my, my young students are like, look, man, we like them, man. Most young people like them. So uh, the generation gap is, you know, I, mean, I consider myself somebody who connects pretty well with these kids. But I but I have it, too. I mean, I like old school R&B. I turn on Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, sometimes. And these guys are, what is that? That's <laughs> good music, man. So, uh, you know, I, I get what you're saying. And, and, and I've seen, check this out, I've seen 
kids that are 25, well, kids, young people who are 25, 26 years old who are new to the profession, I've heard them make statements like, you know, I don't know about kids these days. I'm thinking, come on, you're not, you're not old enough to be saying that. <laughs> but, but first of all, I want to lay a quote on you. And this quote pretty much makes my point for me. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient of restraint. Now, that seems like something that could come out of somebody's mouth in the year 2015, someone my age, you know, on some talk radio show or something like that. It came from 700 BCE, <laughs> ancient Greece. Uh, they think the author was Hesiod, who was a famous poet during that time period. This is 200 years prior to the building of the Parthenon. This is a society that's on the way up. I mean, it's a society that's, that's really got its act together. And there's this person, this very prominent first person, that's totally disgusted by the young people in Athens. So if you can embrace that right there, you can accomplish a lot. Because there's nothing new about Generation X. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I'm going to tell you something. Not only are they a pointless preoccupation to be nostalgic about the good old days, but, but those visions are pretty inaccurate to begin with. You know, when I, I started school, I, my first year of kindergarten was in September of 1966. And, you know, I, I think back to those times and, you know, man, I had all the boxes checked. I was, you know, white. I was male. Both my mom and dad were married. I, I was relatively athletic. You know, I was a Christian kid. You know, all those things. I had all those boxes checked. But there was a lot of kids that didn't fit those, those boxes. There was a lot of kids that couldn't check them all. And, you know, I look back on those times, and I can tell you if you were a female, if you were not Christian, if you were not white, you just weren't taken that seriously in this country. So, number one, I, I look at nostalgia as, as kind of a pointless preoccupation at its best and something that can really uh, separate you from young people at its worst. So I think, you know, you have to look at nostalgia and uh, you have to look at kids. These kids don't care what happened 30 years ago. They barely care about what happened last month. <laughs> you know, they're citizens of the present. And you might personally long for the mother country some, like, distant time when you were, you had a full head of hair and you were Mr. Mr. Everything, but, but those times aren't coming back. And, and I think the sooner you embrace that, the so, so I'm, I'm really, really uh, strong on this concept of nostalgia because I, I hear adults say it all the time. I heard adults say it when I was a young person. And to be honest with you, I can remember uh, this uh, one teacher I had in, in middle school, and, and he seemed like a museum exhibit. I mean, <laughs> he was always droning on about how awful the present times were, and, you know, now people my age are doing the same thing. So there's, there's just nothing new in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, one other thing that I, I wanted to talk about, and I think uh, I think this goes along with with, with the story I had about uh, uh, the dog toenail trimming thing, is I don't know that people really appreciate, and I think you do, sir, 
because of what you do and, and our conversation before coming on, I'm not sure that people really appreciate the power of a good story in terms of bonding, in terms of teaching. Now, there's a famous Ohio uh, uh, author by the name of Daniel Pink, who you may or may not have heard of. Oh, yeah. He's been on a number of TED Talks, and I was uh, really intrigued with him, and he and I have corresponded back and forth a little bit. If you email him, he'll email you back. It's funny. I heard him on a TED Talk or a, a podcast one time, and he would say, when I was a young person and went to Eastland Mall in Columbus, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I've, I've been to Eastland Mall. So I emailed him, and I said, hello from Eastland Mall in the subject park. He got right back to me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big Daniel Pink fan. And uh, have you ever read uh, a book called A Whole New Mind? I've not. No. It, it basically talks about, you know, and you'll appreciate this, the future is uh, left I always get this confused, right brain thinking, the uh, creative side of the brain. And, and, and the people in the future that are going to be so successful are people like yourself who go out and create a podcast, people who are artistic, people who are, who are talented uh, creatively. They're the ones that are going to be very successful in, in the past, and, and, and excuse me, in the future. And there's this one quote in this book, and I'll never forget it. Uh, he challenges the reader early on. He gives them a bunch of information in the first chapter. And one of them is, are just some facts. And another, another uh, set of information is a story about a guy who took on uh, an IBM computer. He was a chess champion, uh, Gary Kasparov. He tried to beat this IBM uh, computer in chess, and he lost. It's kind of like the story of John Henry, the steel driving man. Mm -hmm. This person that... That, that struggles valiantly in a losing cause against technology. And then he had a whole bunch of information in the other, in the other part. So later on in the book, Daniel Pink goes, okay, I want you to think back to the first chapter. Who can remember this fact, this fact, this fact, and this fact? I couldn't remember any of them. Who remembers the story of Gary Kasparov? I remembered all of it. Every bit of it I remember because it told a story and it captivated me. He, he taught me a lot in that chapter uh, through application that I just love. Oh my gosh, I tell stories all the time. I never realized the power of it. <laughs> Here's what Daniel Pink has to say. Our difficulty retrieving an isolated fact and our relative ease summing the sad saga of Gary Kasparov aren't signs of flaccid intelligence or impending Alzheimer's. They merely demonstrate how our minds work. Stories are easy to remember because in many ways, stories are how we remember. <laughs> so as far as like bonding with students, Again, I, I say, let them get to know you. See, here's the thing. You walk into a class like my student teacher Charlie did a number of years ago, and you have some kids. They don't want anything to do with you. They're not going to give you the time of day. They're going to make it hard on you. So uh, if you try to get to know them before they're ready, it's, it's, it's counterproductive. They're just going to shut you down. So what you have in your control is allow them to get to know you. Open up to them some. And like I told my story, you know, my dog getting the toenails trimmed. Now, you know, I've been at this a long time, Ron. There's a kid in the front row that could put up his hand or not even put up the hand and say, what's this going to do with history? You know, why are you telling us this stuff? And that happens. Well, a couple things are going on there. Number one, you just identified the kid you need to work on a relationship with. And number two, it gives you the opportunity to say, hey, I'm just trying to share a little bit about my life and maybe in the process I might learn something about you. 
And there's a lot of kids in the back that aren't as uh, extroverted as him thinking, wow, that was pretty interesting. I didn't mind that story at all. And, and nine times out of ten, that kid that's persnickety, that's, that's crabbing, is the, is the kid next week that's showing you a picture of his dog <laughs> or telling you what he had for dinner. So uh, I, I say use, you know, become familiar, become approachable for your students. And, and I think I think that's one of the keys to connecting like that. And, and then, like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years older than my students. You know, I have 14 and 15-year-old students in many of my classes, and I'm 54 years old. You know, uh, that's not easy to have the same language and to talk about the same things. But but I find that I'm, I'm still having some success with it, and, that, and, that, and that's a great feeling. That's great. Through all the work that you've done, you've been in education your entire career. If you could wave your magic wand, what what would be one thing you would change above anything else to make education more valuable and more productive across the country? Wow, that's a darn good question. Um, I, I really think the conversation we had earlier is probably where things are headed. I mean, I, I mean, look, you know, we we have a. Uh, school calendar based on like 1800s agricultural times, you know, mm-hmm. need the kids in the summertime to harvest in the fields. Well, come on, man. I mean, those days are over. Uh, the idea that we're going to keep doing this the way we're doing it right now, 20, 30 years from now, I don't think it's very realistic. And that's going to be a hard change for people, but it, it is the way it's going. I mean, I, I do think that technology is going to make the classroom, not a specific place in a building, but but I think it's just going to be everywhere. Now, what we have to try, this is what we have to do, is we have to try to make it so we don't lose that communal, personal interaction that you get in a school, in a college, in in a high school classroom. That can't be forfeited in the process. Learning, like you were saying, is a better way to learn. There's no question about it. But if we have uh, every kid sitting at home in their mom and dad's study on a computer screen learning all this stuff, but they don't know how to negotiate dealing with a a bully, or they don't know how to negotiate, like, walking into gym class and feeling like an idiot asked to do something you can't do. If we don't have kids that get up on stage and, and sing a solo and conquer their fear to do that, then we're missing a huge part of the education process. So the challenge is to allow them the freedom to explore the world, but not lose that social communal aspect of being in a school and being part of something bigger than just your mom and dad study. Mm-hmm. So that's not an answer. <laughs> but it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a goal more or less. Well, it's such a tug of war because you've got people that you got some you got some families that have no personal investment from a parent's standpoint yeah. in their child's education. You have some parents that want super individual achievement. Everyone wants individual attention at some level, but then, like you said, those community type 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 activities 
you'd need to be able to navigate those to be successful just as much, if not more so, yeah. than those individual pieces. And and that's 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 a real tug of war because people want to move forward. They want to they want to do everything for me, 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 me. But that's where, from in my profession, that's where we see the the value of the extracurricular activities. Yes. Like you said, the school performances, the the athletic teams. Those those things that teach team and even in the classroom, every professor that I know on on campus has their students doing group projects all the time because you, you have to develop that cohesion and that that skill set or you you're gonna be behind when you when you get out into the professional world. Right. Right. And, and, and it's a I wish I had more specific answers, but I don't it's 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 such an interesting dilemma you want to personalize but you also want good citizens <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that, that, that's a dilemma it's a trade-off sure sure well what i want to do james is wrap up the show you've got a wonderful career of teaching a lot of wonderful memories that you you've shared some with us you got a great wife three great kids yeah. what what's the legacy you're hoping to leave behind Great question. This job should be a lot of fun. It should be a lot of fun. You should have a lot of fun in the classroom. It should be an enjoyable experience. What sold me on it in 1985 is I walked into that classroom in Mount Vernon, Ohio, and pretty early on, I was thinking, this is a pretty neat profession. This is a lot of fun coming to school every day. If you can, if you can have fun in this job, you will be successful. And I, and I hope that's the role model that I have for, for the people at Big One High School or the, or the students that come through my class that later become teachers or the students who come, come through my class and become parents. Uh, you know, you, you want to have a lot of fun with young people because uh, you know, they're, they're just wonderful. I, I couldn't agree more. I have the opportunity to do the same thing every day, and it's, yeah. it, it's, it's great. Right. I mean, you're, you're on a beautiful college campus with kids that uh, have goals and are pretty full of themselves at times, and, and, and that's, that's exhilarating. Okay. okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up the show here, and then if you can hold the line. Sure. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans Show. This was Episode 38 with James Sturdivant, 31-year veteran of high school teaching and author. James, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure, sir. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes and leave your feedback. Have a great day.